You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're joining us from. My name is Scott Worden, and I'm the director of the Afghanistan and Central Asia program for the U.S. Institute of Peace. It's my great pleasure to welcome everybody, both in person and online, to this discussion about the challenging situation in Afghanistan and looking into fundamental questions about whether the Taliban, who took over Afghanistan on August 15th, are able to govern the country. We invite everybody to take part in today's discussion by participating online. You can use the chat box function that is on the USIP homepage to type questions. We'll have a discussion for about 45 minutes and then we'll turn to audience questions. So type them in there and we will choose from those. We ask that you use your name and also specify uh, where you are participating from. And I also encourage everybody to follow on Twitter. The hashtag is hashtag AfghanistanUSIP, all one word. It's been nearly two and a half months since the Taliban did take over Afghanistan and the situation there is becoming desperate. The UN estimates that half of the population will suffer uh, severe food shortages and hunger in the coming winter. There's a currency crisis, there's a run on the banks, there's a liquidity crisis, and the Taliban have been rolling back rights, women's rights, and others since they took over. So our distinguished panelists today, who come from Afghanistan and have a lot of experience on Afghanistan, will help us to understand what is the current situation, but also, hopefully, what can the U.S., what can other international partners, and what can Afghans do to try to mitigate the crisis that is unfolding? We have a great list of panelists, so let me start on my immediately left by introducing Lutfullah Najafi Zada. He is the director of Tolo News in Afghanistan. That's the largest watched TV network and the largest news network in the country. Also, we have Nahid Farid. She is an elected member of parliament from Herat province, and she is also the chairwoman of the Women's Commission of the Parliament. And then finally, we have Steve Brooking, who has recently left as a special advisor at UNAMA, the UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, where he was in particular following the Doha peace talks. Uh, the way that we'll work it today is that I will conduct an interview with the panelists, as I said, for about 45 minutes, and then we welcome audience participation. Uh, so I want to start off with you, Lafola. You have a unique position as the news director. Uh, you, you've been able to track the security, the political, the social conditions in Afghanistan over many years uh, across the country. I want to ask by, uh, start by asking you, how has the situation changed, not just recently, but since if we go back to April, when the U.S. announced that all U.S. troops would be gone by September uh, 11th? and then take us through to now. What is the contrast that you see between the conditions then and now, and what do you see as the most urgent priorities? Thank you, Scott. Good to be here. I think when Biden made that announcement, that was, in, in, in my view, the end of the peace process. And uh, the Taliban literally um, waited for that moment uh, to uh, uh, take over Afghanistan militarily. Uh, which happened on August 15, as, as, as we all watched and went through. Um, but a lot has changed since then, right? Uh, I think uh, the current uh, power structure in Kabul is look, 
it looks like the Taliban feel that they had a military takeover instead of a political win. And the Haqqanis are way more powerful than the rest. Um, uh, I, that means uh, that they are thinking that this was such a, such, such a, such a big uh, success uh, f for them. And it does not necessarily, um, I think, um, send good signals about uh, of a more moderate Taliban um, governance in, in, in the future, uh, which, which needs to be seen. Um, but also, I think the Taliban should think whether they are better off now with the whole government, which lacks legitimacy, uh, support, funding, um, compared to where they were on August 14th, where you know they uh, were everywhere, I think. A lot of people were asking them to come back and be part of the, the, the government, and some negotiated settlement probably would have served them better as well, which didn't happen. I don't, I don't know if we're interested to go into, into the details of what happened. But I think the, the political situation at, at this stage, I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's very promising. Um, um, and some of the bad decisions the Taliban have made, um, uh, which, which is appalling, like you know, girls are not allowed to go to school, and uh, it's more than, more than a month. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't believe that uh, there isn't uh, enough outcry about that uh, in the international community. On the economic front, I think uh, we are on the verge of an economic um, catastrophe. Um, uh, I think more than half of the Afghans uh, have no uh, food security at this stage. Mm -hmm. uh, I, th I, th I think five million you know, kids are facing uh, acute malnutrition. And there are, from, from what I see, uh, that you know, more than, I think 60% of Afghans have no uh, food reserves for, for winter, which is just wow. across um, um, the, um, the corner. On security, um, I think <clears throat> Daesh is um, apparently becoming more and more dominant. Uh, they have co conducted uh, some quite uh, strong attacks, um, high-profile attacks uh, since the Taliban um, took over uh, the attacks on Shia targets um, in Kunduz and Kabul and, and, and Kandahar. And um, they attacked the other day on the, on the military hospital. Um, I think that's pretty alarming too. So, um, I mean, Daesh is a whole, I think, different discussion also from a US national security point of view, uh, as, 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 as they are pretty much interested on how to deal with, with it um, from a counterterrorism point of view. But I think one should ask, you know, at least a couple of questions on Daesh at this stage. That you know, where Daesh is, is going? Is it a split group of the Taliban, or uh, and how uh, Daesh's resurgence um, uh, is uh, really helping other groups, uh, other international terrorist groups, to uh, to um, um, find a space for them to operate in Afghanistan and threaten uh, international security. Um, uh, Crime, uh, we hear that crime is very much underreported um, uh, in, in the country, if, uh, if, uh, if we still talk about security. So, so, so that's, uh, and we hear that a lot of kidnappings you know, are happening um, uh, throughout, throughout Afghanistan, uh, in Kabul and in, in Herat um, as well. Um, so I would say, but, but I mean, you, you said, you know, what has changed? Uh, I can't. I can't just be an analyst on Afghanistan. I mean, we're emotional about it, right? Uh, we have lost, we have lost, uh, you know, our country. I think uh, 
lost the values that we believed in, um, um, things like press freedom, for instance, that we're going to talk about. Um, uh, and um, I think we're quite sentimental about you know what has what has changed. I think it has changed our life for probably forever. Thanks for that. Uh, I want to get back to the legitimacy question in the discussion later, but let me ask a follow-up about press freedom. So Tolo being one of the largest news networks, the largest, what have the Taliban allowed or restricted in terms of Tolo's own reporting? But then more generally, there have been reports since the takeover of journalists being beaten. I think that's one of the freedoms that right. uh, is most under threat. How, do you, how would you characterize the state of play in terms of journalism in a free press right now? Well, the fact that we're able to operate, so that's, that's a good thing. But it doesn't mean we're not under tremendous pressure. Uh, music is largely banned. Hmm. Liberal um, um, drama series are no longer uh, on air. Uh, objective reporting. Is, is almost not there mm. or isn't there you know, as much as we want it to be. Um, uh, there were some instructions given to the media uh, in the early days by the Taliban, but a lot of self-censorship happened in the early days of Taliban takeover, which they did not provide further clarity on what their positions you know, are, but they're certainly enjoying. Um, uh, and, and, and appreciating the fact that uh, they are not getting enough criticism. Um, let's say, I mean, to give you an example, Ghani appointed this uh, interior minister um, who was not a very successful governor in, in so many provinces, I think, last year. And then there was so much scrutiny mm. on this almost unknown guy. But look at the interior minister of today, right? How much reporting we see on him. So, so when you talk about you know objective journalism and reporting, I would I would say you know there isn't space to do much. But um, we shouldn't forget that media is still there. There are hundreds of journalists who have bravely chosen to stay behind and continue their work. We should be grateful um, at, for, for, to them and for their work. And uh, we are getting a lot of information out of Afghanistan, Scott. Mm -hmm. We have um, if you look at Taliban's governance and behavior, there has been way more reporting and documentation in the past 80 days compared to their five years when they were um, last time around. Mm. And that is because of social media, that's because of uh, so many journalists who are not just in Kabul, but throughout the country. Thanks, and I want to also turn back to what effect does that scrutiny have? But let me hear from the other panelists. Nahid, you're an elected member of parliament. You have thousands of constituents in Herat. What are you hearing from them about the conditions they're facing? Uh, thank you so much. Um, thank you, Yusuf, for um, holding this event. And I'm so glad I'm sharing the panel with the distinguished panelists. Um, so I'm, I'm speaking here before you and before um, everyone is still in the shock that Afghanistan has fallen under Taliban control and Al-Qaeda and Haqqani network are freely active in Afghanistan. And when I see back to uh, my 20 years of political endeavor, I see complete erosion of whatever I have done and so many of us done in Afghanistan. When I see back to my constituency, to Afghanistan and to Herat, I see the core of civilization of Afghanistan, which is Herat, is ruling by barbarism, ruling by savagery. And you know, this is um, uh, very unfortunate. 
I want to start um, um, by giving an introduction of the situation. It's then through that we can understand what happened and we can um, conclude our findings. Uh, you know, when Taliban take over Afghanistan and entered Kabul, they said all the right things. They said that they have no problem with girls' education, women can resume their jobs. Uh, in terms of women's rights, they had no objection. They also said that they will give general amnesty to um, everyone, anyone who opposed them. And that was a very good thing, a very right thing. Uh, they also said that they will start consultation to form an inclusive government based on um, consultation and also consensus and have everyone reflect themselves in the government. But it took just a few days that they uh, took back their words. In terms of women's rights, today is 48 days that women and girls of Afghanistan cannot participate in secondary and high school. Afghanistan is the only country that the government um, is behaving like that against their girls and their education system. In terms of women's rights um, and um, jobs, um, women could not resume their jobs and they cannot work. In terms of inclusivity of the government, you see a highly fragmented de facto structure, very loose group of all Taliban, all male dominant um, structure that does not reflect diversity at all, even, um, even among Taliban themselves. Uh, in terms of amnesty, you see uh, extrajudiciary killings, you see public execution mm. in my city, you see forced displacement, you see um, so many atrocities against women. I call the situation against women a gender apartheid that is going on against women of Afghanistan. And um, in terms of human rights and, and values for the democratic values of Afghanistan, you see um, media outlets, most of media outlets are shut down and, or they cannot operate freely. Uh, freedom of speech, freedom of um, uh, idea are shut down, and there are a lot of restrictions against that. And uh, I think Taliban were smart at the beginning because they, they knew that the world is watching them, but um, they changed their world because they wanted to keep their soldiers and foot soldiers in line and united. And, um, and to, to, to make them integrated. Into, into this Taliban circle, because the Taliban foot soldier would question their leaders that what was the reason we fought for 20 years that women have all this freedom, then they would join other terrorist groups like ISIS and, and the Taliban would lose all those foot soldiers. That would be one of the reasons, but there are all other reasons as well. Uh, I don't want to go to the details. And what people are thinking, what women are thinking, how they are reacting to the situation, I would say that women of Afghanistan and people of Afghanistan and people of my, my constituency feel abandoned, feel betrayed by their politicians. They feel, um, they feel that they have a devastated situation, miserable situation, economically, politically. And you know what? Majority of the people I know, they want to flee Afghanistan. They want to get out. 
they don't want to leave because you know what? They don't see a clear future for themselves and their families and their children in that country. And that's really unfortunate. You know, when we, we talk about Taliban, uh, the Taliban and the other terrorist groups, they have, we have, Afghan people have a picture that portrayed by the word to them that these are terrorists. And now all of them are ruling the country. How you, would you feel living under that kind of government? Not good. Thank you. Um, Steve, let me ask you a question from the international perspective, uh, having served with the UN. Um, you know, the region, on the one hand, I think was generally uncomfortable with the US troop presence there, uh, the immediate neighbors and, and some regional powers. On the other hand, now we have a situation that's been described that's quite dire for inside the country, and they're facing pressures of economic collapse, refugee flows, terrorist flows, narcotics. Uh, it's not a pretty picture for the region. What's your assessment of their attitude generally toward the takeover, and what is the region prepared to do to mitigate some of the risks that have been described here? Uh, thanks, Scott. Thank you, Yusuf, and thank you for my two fellow panelists. Um, I think the region perhaps made some strategic miscalculations uh, in, in the course of the last uh, you know, 12 months or so. I think that um, the United States, President Trump and then President Biden, the administrations, had made it quite clear that it was the US intention to leave. And uh, efforts were made by you know, Ambassador Kalzad to try and get some form of regional consensus, some regional support for the future of Afghanistan. Um, and various fora were held, the Troika, the Troika Plus, Moscow meetings, meetings in Tehran. There were various you know, attempts to get some form of regional unity. The United Nations Secretary General appointed his personal envoy, John Arnaud, to try and you know, see if the region would come together. And I think the Americans had tried to make it quite clear that basically you know, a burden would fall upon the region and that this was not America's backyard and was going to become a regional problem. But I fear that the region did not believe that the Americans would actually leave um, and that they misjudged that Afghanistan was of such key strategic interest to the United States, you know, having bases near Iran, near China, near the Central Asian republics was very important for America, so they would never actually leave. So I think Biden's announcement that they were going in quite a short time did um, cause problems. And as you alluded to, you know, some of the neighbors or perhaps some organizations amongst some of the neighbors and some of the uh, near region had been actively working you know, to promote the Taliban and to put the Americans under pressure. And now they are perhaps worried that they are going to sort of reap what they have sown. And you know, the Russians in particular have always been very concerned about the flow of narcotics and terrorism through the Central Asian states and into Russia. Um, and Pakistan and Iran, who have nobly hosted you know, millions of Afghan refugees, unfortunately for them, for the last you know, sort of 40 years, are, are worried that 
the refugee flows will start coming back into their countries as opposed to when there was hope in the country, as you, as you mentioned, that I think the big problem is that people have no hope now. So people will want to leave. So the refugee flows are likely to go out again to Iran and to Pakistan. So I think it is a problem. The Moscow meeting you know, tried to lay the blame, if you like, on the United States and the, and the Western troop contributing powers and said, you must pay for all this still going forward, which is clearly not going to be the case. Um, but there is a chance for some multilateralism, perhaps. There should be a chance for concerned countries to come together to work together. It's difficult for Iran and the United States, obviously, for other reasons. But one would hope that people can come together to provide more of a multilateral approach to the issues around Afghanistan. I'm not optimistic. There are lots of other issues that divide the various key players, um, you know, Pakistan, India, United States, Russia, United States, China, Iran, United States. Um, so there's various problems that will make that less than, less than, uh, less than comfortable for countries and, and less than easy. But I do think that you know, the region and the, the rest of the world need to come together to try and help solve the problems. I think that the Taliban also miscalculated the regional response. You know, they had been emboldened by the outreach from neighbors, other countries to them. And I think they felt that China, in particular, was the economic superpower, would be stepping in with aid when the West stepped out. China, so far, has given you know, some humanitarian aid, but it hasn't shown any real interest in major infrastructure investment. They're worried about the stability. They're worried about the links to you know, the Uyghur terrorist movement, as they would see it. Um, and so I think that you know, the region has also been cautious, and the Taliban were expecting more engagement from the region, more recognition, perhaps, you know, maybe even you know, official recognition. But the recent visits and the comments out of Moscow and other places, Tehran, have been quite clear that the region also wants to see some form of inclusive government and an end to terrorism and are concerned about narcotics and refugee flows. So I think that you know, the Taliban will need to do more with the region, and the region will need to do more with the Taliban, and the world will, will need to do more with the Taliban to try and nudge them to behave in a better way and govern in a, in a, in a better way, in a more inclusive way. But it seems like there's a pretty big math problem between roughly $7 billion in assistance that were given militarily civilian aid by the U.S. and the West, and then you have that matched with very low regional promises of humanitarian aid and no military or development support. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of humanitarian aid has been pledged, as you mentioned. There is a, there is a big conference uh, run by United Nations, uh, OCHA, on 13th of September, and over a billion dollars was pledged for humanitarian aid. But I think we need to remember, even at the start of the year, there was a humanitarian crisis in Af you know, Afghanistan. It's not been caused by, in a sense, the Taliban, but it has been exacerbated by you know, events during the course of this year. At the start of the year, all the fighting was causing problems with food insecurity, displacement, and such like. Now there's perhaps better security, so there's more access for humanitarians to go around the country. But there is still you know, huge issues. Uh, the economy is collapsing, as people have said. So livelihoods, lives, the ability to plant crops, people returning to the house, has been a big problem. So I mean, food and agriculture organization were bringing in crops and bringing in seeds desperately as soon as they could in order to people who plant before winter. But there is a big you know, humanitarian crisis coming, definitely. And um, then, as you say, the economy. You know, there's, there's, there is economic activity. You know, the Taliban are still able to raise revenue from the customs, the border posts. 
but it's significantly down on what there was previously. And I think because, as, as Lord Fuller alluded to, there was no proper handover, uh, and it was all, as we know, chaotic, um, the Taliban, there's no plan. There's, what's the plan? How will the Taliban be using the revenues they do get? Is there, a, is there a plan? Is there a budget that they can put together? I think they need outside help on that. They asked for help from Pakistan, or Pakistan sorry, offered help for in public financial management, which the Taliban turned down. But it does strike me that they, they could do with some help. They're not quite there with governing. Had there been a proper handover um, and not this chaos of evacuation and, and such like, then you know, they, could have, they would have come in perhaps and been the ministers and deputy ministers, and underneath them there may have been a functioning civil service. Um, when I went around the various ministries in the last few months, um, there were, a lot of them were quite deserted, um, and a lot of civil servants were not there. Some had fled, some weren't coming to work because they weren't sure they were going to be paid, some were worried about retribution. So some of the ministries are functioning better than others, but I, I think they need some help and, with governing, but are they prepared to accept that help, or are they concerned it will come with too many conditions, and particularly on the financial side? You know, the constant call is for the unfreezing of assets uh, that are currently frozen and things, but uh, you know, this is not going to be unconditional, I feel, from you know, particularly Western governments. You know, on things like women's education, representative government, you know, there's, not, there's you know, not really any Shias in the government, there's very few Tajiks, you know, very few Turkmen's and such like. So I think people will have expectations from the Taliban about how their government is formed, and how it operates in order for them to release more money to help stimulate the economic situation. Thanks. Let me ask each of you, Nahid, I think you mentioned factionalism within the <coughs> Taliban. They're not mon monolithic. I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit on the divisions you see, with, you see within the Taliban, maybe on a spectrum of conservatism to reform. And I'm interested in the other panelists after that. Um, yeah, in terms of um, um, Taliban themselves, you know, uh, they could not come to a consensus yet. As we know, um, there are different uh, fragmentations among Taliban that have different ideas. And you know the uh, withdrawal announcement and also um, the escape of President Ghani from Afghanistan through a hot potato in hand of Taliban. And they don't know what to, how to deal with that. And um, therefore, they were not ready for that. So the political situation and the crisis that we have and the lack of direct cash payment and economic problem and the um, humanitarian crisis, all of them are, are factors that affect the political um, fragmentation in Afghanistan, especially in terms of Taliban. As I told you, they want to leave the government, uh, sorry, they want to form the government in a very loose way mm. to keep their status quo, you know, to keep everyone integrated, to keep the picture. But there are a lot of killings among themselves, as you see, that they kill each other um, because there was no structure how to manage this country. Taliban can be defined through guns, through violence, through fear, but they cannot be defined through delivering basic needs, delivering um, um, governance by proficiency and expertise. And that's why we have this situation. 
LaFillo, can I ask you the, the sure. same question, but also uh, maybe add the element of, of ISIS. The, you mentioned there have been these spectacular attacks. Um, they have their own agenda, but I think there's also been discussion about them being a, a, uh, an outlet for Taliban that don't think the Taliban government is going far enough. Uh, so not only how do you see Taliban unity, but also how do you see other uh, terrorist groups capitalizing on any disunity? Well, when you talk about unity in Afghanistan, you always have issues, no matter who run, who run uh, uh, Kabul or the government, uh, I think. <laughs> but the Taliban, I think, the Taliban probably did not predict or they were not ready to be the sole player in the field, and mm -hmm. uh, probably in a ghost field. Um, they were thinking that, you know, there might be um, Americans paying for this, you know, um, Norwegians paying for that, <laughs> Germans doing this. And like the previous governments, you know, they would just sit and enjoy. Um, I, think, I think now their biggest difference is on how to survive and what governance model will help them survive. I think there are some significant differences among the Taliban leadership. It started from the very early days, even with flags. You know, when Baradar was meeting people, he was keeping both flags. When others were meeting uh, yeah. you know, officials, uh, they were removing mm -hmm. the Republic flag. Um, um, and uh, then we realized, uh, as we moved uh, forward after August 15, that the, um, uh, the security establishment uh, of the Taliban, or the military wing, and, uh, to be in particular, I think they were pre you know, pretty dominant in, in what they wanted. And apparently the message is uh, from the very top leadership of you know, coming from Habatullah. It's not very reconciliatory as, 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 as we hear. On Daesh, I think, <clears throat> I think Daesh is a threat. Is a threat to the Taliban, is a threat to the Afghan people, to minorities, is a threat to the world. Um, I, I wonder how the United States will find a way to, um, to work with the Taliban or at least you know, have a counterterrorism campaign in Afghanistan either from over the horizon or uh, through, through, through other partners um, um, to deal with the threat of Daesh, because that's, um, as um, uh, you know, uh, officials here uh, uh, have uh, analyzed that they might, they might be in a position to do something or at least you know, plan attacks or think about it in, in, a, in a matter of six months. Thanks. Steve, I'm curious your perspective on this, particularly having observed the Doha talks. So you must be familiar with the, the Doha negotiating faction. How do you see their role in now the Taliban government? And what's your take on the factional differences between different groups? Um, I think, uh, obviously, if you like, those engaging in Doha were perhaps some of the more, you might say, moderate or uh, foreigner-friendly, user-friendly sort of uh, members of the Taliban movement, in, including the, uh, the members of the Haqqani uh, group that were present in Doha. Um, I think that, I mean, they haven't moved on from being an insurgency movement to being a government, really, is one of the problems. Insurgencies tend to prioritize unity over everything else, and we have seen 
and it's not unexpected, you know, when the government was had to be thrown together at short notice, there were arguments and disputes between the various groupings, whether you want to call it the Kandahari, uh, Taliban, the, you know, the Helmandi Taliban, the Haqqanis, the Northern Taliban, non-Pashtun type Taliban. And there were various groupings kind of vying for power or arguing over positions. Um, I think one of the reasons they didn't move for an inclusive government was they were too busy trying to sort out their own internal you know, differences uh, at that stage as well. Um, and so, again, these things happen in any you know, sort of formation of a, of, a, of a cabinet or a government, people are after positions. Um, but they also, that means they have not made, if you like, difficult or controversial decisions as far as the internal unity of their movement is concerned. So letting all women go to work, all girls to be educated is within their movement seen quite controversial by some people. And some people have argued that if, you know, if we make that decision, um, that will drive people towards Daesh, towards splinter groups. They will you know, leave the main, mainstream Taliban movement. W you know, we hear, and Taliban commanders were telling me, their people were, were leaving the Taliban to go to Daesh because Daesh were paying people, were, were paying fighters, whereas the Taliban don't really have any money to pay fighters. So you know, they, they, Daesh are allegedly offering to pay fighters. Now, I'm not sure where Daesh is getting that money from, if it's true. It could be like the early days of Daesh, where they promised a lot, and then people went to them and they found there was nothing, so they came back to the Taliban. So it maybe we'll see the same again, that this money won't be forthcoming. But I think the Taliban are still very concerned about that split um, in the movement, and therefore you know, are being cautious in their decisions. Uh, Haibatullah came out with a, a, you know, comments uh, sort of overnight or whatever on, on his uh, things, that to be aware of infiltrators into the movement. I mean, clearly, unity remains a key issue for them, and that, that limits their perhaps some of their decision-making and, and, their, and their ability to govern um, at the moment, because they haven't taken that step away from unity against the, you know, the, the Kabul administration, as they would call it, and, and President Ghani, into actually governing themselves. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to the legitimacy question. So Taliban took over by force. There wasn't a negotiated settlement. Right. Um, he, as mentioned, you're, you're actually elected. Uh, you have a constituency. Uh, democracy, obviously, is not a priority of the Taliban. Um, but how do you see them gaining legitimacy? How big is the legitimacy problem for their ability to govern? And, and I say that also noting, technically, they've said this is an interim government that they formed. Yeah. Is there any plan for a permanent one? And does that involve the Afghan people? Well, regarding the interim government, Taliban in the 90s, the whole time, they had interim government. They didn't change it to a permanent government because, as I told you, they want to keep this as a transition for, for a long time, as uh, they want to keep this status quo. And in terms of um, legitimacy, um, yes, parliament uh, got the vote from the people of Afghanistan. The people of Afghanistan deserve our representation at this greatest time of need. Um, although Taliban shut down the, the parliament building, that doesn't mean that uh, our representation is over. That's why I think this is the time that we have to represent our people's concern and pains and problems. And uh, regarding the legitimacy of, of, of Taliban, Taliban are begging for legitimacy. And I think that's a very big leverage that the world can use as a catalyst against Taliban to, to set benchmarks, to set criteria, um, to safeguard the inclusivity 
um, and to form the government that the people of Afghanistan deserve, not the government that has been taken by force or by violence or by conspiracy. That's the issue that we have to keep in mind, that the world will decide about the prospect of Afghanistan in the future. The, the way that they engage with Taliban is very, very, very vital and important. Um, if the world just uh, um, look away, and the situation in terms of human rights and democracy will be deteriorated. If the world want to uh, help people of Afghanistan, women of Afghanistan, minorities, um, different ethnicities uh, of Afghanistan, um, they should term, uh, set terms and conditions and conditionalities, even in aid um, delivery to Afghan people. And there has to be terms. One of the terms should be that I hate the the term that they use women of Afghanistan as victims mm. and uh, use women of Afghanistan as beneficiaries only. Mm. Women of Afghanistan should be part of this aid delivery. They should be a condition by the world that if Taliban want those aid and want those engagement, not the legitimacy, engagement with them, they have to accept that women should be part of any humanitarian delivery planning, design, designing, uh, implementation of all this aid that goes to Afghanistan. I'm so um, upset when I see even international community, when they start engaging with Taliban, they don't have women in their delegation. That means you're giving up to Taliban. Taliban do not recognize women, but women are the leaders. We prove to the world that we are uh, capable of so many activities, and we could become agents of change for that country. And when the world recognizes Taliban's belief against women, just imagine how women are feeling. Mm -hmm. Philip, what's your I, view I, on the? I don't, I don't think the world is rushing to recognize the Taliban. Mm. Um, I think some of the some of the early steps taken by the Taliban basically distanced them from the international community. Uh, what I see in places like Washington, D.C., uh, I don't think that there is an, enough appetite to uh, even directly engage with the Taliban on anything but uh, evacuation and uh, you know, uh, counterterrorism and humanitarian assistance. Mm -hmm. Even uh, there are a lot of questions around uh, you know, how to deliver those aids, uh, which uh, dollars should not uh, end up in Taliban's pockets. Um, I think um, even the region, I would say, uh, you know, I was, I was in, in the early days, I was expecting um, at least China um, uh, and Pakistan probably and Qatar maybe and then at second stage, Russia, um, uh, you know, to uh, to recognize the Taliban, or at least um, have uh, pro probably Turkey too. But um, now it seems uh, it seems to be, you know, Taliban seems to be quite far from that. Um, so um, uh, they are uh, no embassy, no Afghan embassy anywhere in the world, uh, even in Pakistan, I would say, mm. even in Qatar. Uh, you know, have not uh, established uh, meaningful contact with the Taliban, uh, with the Taliban's foreign ministry. So they are cut from the rest of the world. They're cut off. Uh, it's an isolated state, uh, and uh, I think uh, they are suffering, and most importantly, the people are suffering. Mm -hmm. So let me ask one other round of questions, and then we'll go to audience uh, questions. 
still with you, Lord Fuller. So we've heard about the lack of legitimacy domestically. Right. Uh, the Asia Foundation had a long-running survey that always put Taliban approval ratings or popularity at around 5%. Right. Um, they are in charge now. What do you see as the consequence of dissatisfaction by Afghans with Taliban rule, which include a failed economy as well as rollback of rights? Is there uh, a domestic sources of domestic pressure that can cause the Taliban to change their policies to reform? Uh, and also, in addition to the Afghan people, where do you see other opportunities to have uh, the Taliban reform its more conservative policies? I think we're talking about you know, future scenarios. I would say how the Taliban would change, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But if there are pressures um, within society, yes. Look at these women groups who go out and protest. They might be small in numbers, but it has a lot of meaning. Mm. Uh, in a country where your president is flat, there are girls who go out and protest you know, in the face of the Taliban and uh, express their views and demand their rights. That means that women empowerment in the past 20 years was something in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, that was meaningful, uh, and and they still and they still do that. Uh, you know, we probably <laughs> probably they're the only group in Afghanistan who uh, are challenging the Taliban um, in, in in their own you know small way. But but I think that means a lot. Uh, we shouldn't just look into numbers of those people who go to the streets, uh, their messages and their de determination. Um, uh, the uh, approval rating for the Taliban was never more than 10, 15 percent um, for any pro-Taliban study that we've ever seen in the past 20 years. Um, uh, even, even uh, I think around April, May, that we were looking into studies, uh, 70 percent, 80 percent of Afghans wanted democracy and uh, you know republic system. Mm -hmm. So there is that will. The question is how to turn that will into a force. Mm -hmm. Um, I, think, I think that will take time. Uh, I don't think the Taliban will go anywhere in the near future, um, at least not in a matter of you know, months, if not years. So, so, so the will for change is there in the public. But don't forget, Scott, that you know, this country is going through conflict for, you know, you know, uh, three, you know four decades, five decades now. So, um, and that is, uh, and people are, you know, tired, um, uh, especially how they feel about the Taliban. And the Taliban was never this powerful. Probably militarily, Taliban, Taliban are way more powerful than some of our neighbors mm. um, uh, in terms of, you know, their access to ammunition and, and, and military equipments and all. Mm. So um, <laughs> then, if the Taliban don't change, I think I think the question is, if the Taliban don't change uh, for better in, in in the coming you know year or two, what will happen? Uh, well, either they go they become they become more hardliner, which we see signs of it, and then that will uh, raise the question of international terrorism, and that will raise the questions of international engagement again mm -hmm. in, in one way or another, or the Taliban fail to govern, where then you will start seeing pockets of, um, I think, um, I hate the word you know, resistance because it's very politically loaded, mm. but you know, some uprising. Uh, it doesn't have to be you know, through the same, you know, um, I think, um, old, uh, old guards. But um, 
you know, there, 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 might, there might be more, uh, more uprising um, uh, in, in, in the coming months or so. And then how that will lead into a full-scale civil war is, is another question of you know, time. How big of a factor do you think ethnic exclusion of the Taliban is in these movements that might arise? Uh, the Taliban have, what, one or two ethnic minorities in a cabinet of almost 30. Right. I think, I think that's, um, they, have, they have been very honest with the Afghan people uh, about who they are, <laughs> which, is, which is pretty good. Um, and the rest of the Afghan people, I would say, uh, along ethnic lines and also, you know, ideological lines, they have, um, they are, they are excluded. Uh, you know, even the, I mean, as you said, uh, forget about other ethnicities. I don't think the Taliban are even Taliban inclusive. Hmm. Um, you know, the current structure that they have. Um, so, um, I, I don't, I don't think that uh, you know, UL. Because any sort of uprising or, or armed resistance, you know, might need some sort of regional understanding and help. Mm -hmm. um, um, probably a lot of people are, you know, giving Taliban a few more months to see uh, to see how how they would change. Thanks, Nahid, What opportunities do you see for particularly domestic pressure on the Taliban? How can the worst of their behaviors be moderated? So, you know, the day that Taliban entered Kabul and Afghanistan fall under the Taliban control completely, I lost my hope. Completely. Mm. But the day I saw women and young generation holding the flag of Afghanistan, open their chest to the bullets of Taliban, and um, shouting in the streets of Kabul and Herat and Mazar-e-Sharif, I regain my hope. Hmm. I regain my hope, and I'm so hopeful. And I'm sure the people of Afghanistan will retake their freedom. But they need the solidarity of the world with them. Hmm. And this is very crucial. We are at the greatest time of the need of the people of Afghanistan in terms of establishing the government we want and we deserve the dignity we want and we deserve. The freedom, the prosperity the people of Afghanistan deserve. And um, no matter how many um, other terrorist groups will build their safe haven in Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan don't want to be defined as a nation of terrorists. And therefore, they will continue this resistance as Lutfullah mentioned, a small group of women come to the street, but that is so meaningful, so meaningful, because they were being beaten. There is no media outlet to um, report. But no matter of fact, they come out and they shout and they want to take their freedom. In terms of um, Taliban's um, way of controlling Afghanistan, I would translate it into hostage. They hostage 30 millions of, of, of people of Afghanistan. Mm. And this hostage operation will finish one day. Thank you. 
Steve, let me ask you a version of that, and particularly I'm interested in where you see opportunities for international pressure, uh, and how do you see U.S. leverage in, in all of this now that troops are gone? Yeah, significantly diminished. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think it, it partly comes back to the legitimacy question rather than recognition per se, because I agree with Lord Fuller that recognition is probably some way away. But I mean, there's different types of legitimacy. I think, firstly, they need to be, they feel they're legitimate within their own organization almost. The Taliban, you know, is the government legitimate? Is it representative of the Taliban? Uh, do its own supporters, if you like, support it? In which case, there is then contrast because obviously uh, a number of them feel that it should be a much more religious society organization. The only people who are entitled to vote or you know, are, you know, are people with sufficient age and religious qualifications, which rules out 90% of, uh, of the population, certainly you know, all the women. Um, and so you know, they, they've got their own internal legitimacy, which they are very concerned about as part of the unity idea. And then there's the domestic unity. And I you know former President Karzai, who I saw a couple of times recently, was quite strong on this, that you know, people expect things now. The people of Afghanistan, it's a lot like the 90s, where there was a great relief when the Taliban took over because they established some sort of security, stop the warlord squabbling. But now, in the last 20 years, as, as, as people have talked about, you know, the Afghan people have come to expect service delivery, human rights, press freedoms, various things, civil society flourishing. And you know, the Taliban somehow need to listen to the people. So one would hope, as they grow more confident, if you like, as, as the longer they're in power, perhaps, then they will find a way of reaching out to the people, you know, not certainly not through elections, um, yeah. but maybe through some forms of Jirga's consultative process. Um, I know some uh, MPs who are still in the country have been talking about trying to form some sort of parliament again, you know, uh, using existing MPs as, as some sort of expression of the will of the people. You know, former President Karzai talked about the need to hold some form of lawyer Jirga to get some mm. blessing. And I think without that legitimacy of some expression of the wishes of the people, then the international recognition and international legitimacy will be severely lacking. And even if they do that, a lot of the international legitimacy won't exist until girls are back at school, women are back at work, the press remains reasonably free and such like. So I think they're, they're going to continue to struggle on that. Um, I don't think they're going anywhere fast. I think that. Uh, my concern is the situation just continues to spiral down. Um, I, there's no real appetite for fighting from most people. <laughs> you know, yeah. There's been enough fighting. And I, I don't see you know, a resistance movement in, in that sense coming in militarily for a civil war instantly. I worry that as the economic situation deteriorates, the competition for resources, scarce resources, will get more and more. Uh, we've already often referred to kidnapping. I mean, money is scarce, so people are kidnapping for ransom. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if they see a rich businessman still around, they'll kidnap his family or whatever. So I, I, you can see fragmentation on that ground that communities that are near customs posts, near border crossings, near mines, near forests, uh, et cetera, will try to take control of the resources in their area or their region. And I, I consider that that's a, a threat I see that the Taliban will have to deal with. Uh, that could lead to renewed tensions and fighting. Thanks. Let's turn to the audience questions. Again, you can type your questions into the chat feature that's on uh, the USIP broadcast on their homepage. And let me take the next question. 
Uh, Doug Brooks asks, can the participants discuss the factions inside the Taliban? Uh, we talked about that a little bit. Maybe, I don't know who would be best to, to give a bit more detail. How do you see that playing out over the coming months? And will it amount to a crisis or will the Taliban self-repair? I just want to um, refer to the cabinet that Taliban announced that majority uh, is dominant by Haqqani network. Most important ministers like Interior, Minister of Virtue, are under Haqqani network, and I think that's the dominant group, a network that is um, dealing with the governance in Afghanistan. And that means what they want to do in Afghanistan. They don't want to deliver. They don't want to bring um, basic uh, services to the people. They want to uh, establish uh, their network and safe haven in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, I think I've touched upon it, but uh, briefly. Uh, so one is this personality differences, right? Uh, we know that some, some, probably some of the Helmandi Taliban, you know, they don't feel empowered enough. Uh, I, I don't know if they really took their positions that, they, that were given to them. So, that, so that's one. But the second is, I agree with, uh, you know, Steve, uh, uh, with Steve, he said that the Taliban have, I think the biggest disagreement is how to transition from, 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 from a military organization, from an, from an insurgency mm -hmm. into, into, into a government. Um, so I think probably they haven't found you know that solution. So that's why they have announced something you know as permanent, temporary, uh, which which God knows how long it's going to take. Is it better for Afghans for the Taliban to be united or divided? Well, we <laughs> we need unity <laughs> as a, as a concept in the country. Uh, but uh, I think you know we need uh, we need. I mean, I, I don't I don't think that really matters. I think what matters here is that you know we need the Taliban to come up with uh, a governance model that can that people can see the end of the road. Mm -hmm. I think that clarity is very much needed at this stage. Thanks. I'm going to go to another one. Kate from Virginia is asking. What kind of direct engagement, if any, should the U.S. have with the Taliban government? And what is the likelihood that the U.S. can get from the Taliban government cooperation on any of the immediate objectives like security, humanitarian aid, counterterrorism? Uh, we, we have no, no American representatives here. Steve, why don't I start with you uh, for your perspective on that and, and welcome other views. Um, so in, uh, I think that uh, the United States will struggle on most of those issues. I think on the humanitarian access and uh, a cooperation on humanitarian issues, that's not a problem. The Taliban have offered and carried through on their promises that you know, they are very keen to see humanitarian access. They are keen to see all this money that was pledged in Geneva. The point they made very strongly uh, to the United Nations was that they wanted to see this money reach the ordinary people of Afghanistan for humanitarian relief. They didn't, they didn't expect it to come to the government. They didn't expect it to come to them. They didn't want it to be spent on expensive foreign salaries, headquarters of NGOs around the world or in Kabul. They wanted it to reach the ordinary people of Afghanistan. And certainly the lack of fighting generally um, has improved the ability of humanitarian organizations to reach 
parts of Afghanistan. Winter will be a, a different problem as always, but I think that on the humanitarian access, that will be quite easy. I think on counterterrorism, there's a real problem. The idea of doing over-the-horizon counterterrorism, I mean, it's not effective. It's going to be so far over the horizon um, that it's going to be even less effective. Uh, I think it was naive of the United States to think that the region would cooperate on, uh, you know, on counterterrorism. Uh, we haven't seen any real splits between various factions of the Taliban and international terrorists, Al-Qaeda. There was some uh, meetings yesterday, I understand, between the Pakistani military and the TTP brokered by the Taliban. Mm. But, you know, uh, that, that's an issue. ETIM, Islamic State, these various groupings, you know, continue to exist, coexist, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. That, that's going to be a problem, and I can't see um, constructive counterterrorism um, cooperation between the United States and the Taliban uh, happening. Um, and human rights monitoring, the Taliban will say there will be no human rights abuses because you know, uh, it's all going to be very peaceful under the Islamic Emirate. Um, and I, again, I see that as something that the Taliban will be reluctant to let the international community, not just the United States, but the United Nations. You know, we've had a very strong, in the past, uh, human rights presence in the United Nations. Whether that will be renewed in the next mandate of the United Nations remains to be seen. Certain powerful countries are against that humanitarian rights monitoring anyway and points of principle. So I think that is going to be an issue. So I think on the humanitarian access side, lots of room for positive engagement. On the rest of it, uh, much less so. And this can happen without recognition, formal recognition, do you think? Yes. Yes. Yes, certainly. Other views on the U.S.-Taliban relationship? Just wanted to add um, to what Steve mentioned about the, can this happen without recognition of Taliban? The word recognized Afghanistan state with its 30 million of population, mm. that's the reality. We have to keep this in mind. We have to remind, remind to the Taliban, if the world want to help Afghanistan, is that because of the people of Afghanistan? And we recognize, yes, we recognize Afghanistan. We recognize this geography. We recognize all the diversity inside of this geography as a country, as a nation. And that's why we are helping. When we are helping, no matter if Taliban are under sanction or the sanction is going to, to be expanded, people of Afghanistan have to have the world attention in this dire humanitarian crisis that we are facing before the fall of Kabul. An average Afghan was living in $1.90 per day. 47% of the population were living under the poverty line before the fall of Kabul. Half of the country was food insecure before the fall of Kabul. Imagine how is the situation right now? After uh, lack of direct cash payment, unprecedented unemployment, exiting, also, all the freezing of the banking system of Afghanistan. How is the situation right now? The sanctions should not be a reason to freeze the humanitarian aid. There has to be a corridor, trusted corridor, that has to be established and by women and men of Afghanistan, civil society, that they can't feel the gap, they can't feel the vacuum that Taliban, in the abnormal government of Taliban, created to deliver the basic needs to the people of Afghanistan. I think the, I mean, the U.S.-Taliban relationship, at least in some state, was pretty deep. <laughs> As, uh, uh, and uh, the U.S. didn't ask anyone if uh, you know, they wanted to talk to the Taliban. 
Um, uh, and they did that for, for, for years. Um, but I think, I think the relationship should not be uh, very arc-centric. It was a mistake that it was arc-centric uh, during the previous administrations. Uh, um, uh, here in, in, the, in, in Washington, D.C., as well as uh, you know, in, in, in Afghanistan. And it shouldn't be, I agree with, uh, uh, with Nahid, uh, who said that you know, we shouldn't uh, focus only, uh, we shouldn't see Taliban, Afghanistan from you know, the prism of Taliban only. Mm -hmm. There are millions of Afghans and others uh, that the United States or the country as uh, you know, a nation should engage with. Thanks. Take another question. Jack from DC is asking Lafula Nahid. Do you have any insights on the changes in rural Afghanistan, where the population is no longer facing indiscriminate air bombs, the rule of warlords, and for the first time in decades are able to travel freely? How has the situation changed for them? I'm not sure if that is uh, entirely accurate, to be very honest with you. Um, uh, I think um, uh, it's, it's good that probably there is less, less fighting because the Taliban are not fighting. Uh, but it doesn't mean that rural Afghanistan is this paradise all of a sudden. Um, I think there is so much happening in rural Afghanistan, and I can give you tons of examples, um, uh, in including security incidents, mm. um, including uh, you know uh, killings. Um, uh, you want to talk about uh, Ispin Boldak? That's rural Afghanistan, right? Uh, you want to talk about um, well uh, the villages around Mazar-e-Sharif? That's rural Afghanistan. So, so a, a lot is happening. But it's very good that um, less Afghans are dying, of course. Um, uh, but there are still a you know, considerable, considerable number of Afghans you know, being killed. Um, in terms of, um, uh, we talked enough about you know, the economic situation and, and how people uh, are, are facing. So it's not just the urbanites. I think I think um, the rural population is uh, probably suffering suffering even more. Uh, there is no money in the cities to buy their products, mm. um, uh, and I wonder. I mean, I've lived in, I've grown up in rural Afghanistan. It's uh, it's way more difficult. Uh, yeah, I mean, we were we were c kind of free when the Taliban were ruling in the 90s. Uh, you know, going from one village to another, but we didn't have food. So Jack was right on the issue of suffering of people of Afghanistan before the fall of uh, Afghanistan entirely under Taliban. Yes, people were suffering of insecurity and many other problems. But even right now that we are speaking, people are suffering from um, security, from economy shortage, from humanitarian crisis. And even if we have security, if that's the case that we have the security, we should distinguish between security and stability, mm. okay? Even if we have ability to travel all over the country, that's not security. When you're not stable, when you're a minority, when you're a woman, when you're not able to get out of Afghanistan, out of home without a male counterpart, that's not security. Okay? And I'm talking on behalf of 55% of the population of Afghanistan and the majority that are women, that are kept behind and the world should not look away. Thanks. Let me go to Anne Tagdell, 
for how much longer do you think the Taliban can continue operating with this caretaker government? Uh, we talked about that a bit before. What possible consequences do you anticipate if they hold to this structure for too long? Do you see the Taliban inviting collaboration with experts from the Ghani government addressing the immediate and long-term concerns that they're not familiar with? So I think we talked a bit about the, the uh, the caretaker issue, but not as much about the capacity issue. So I welcome responses on both of those. Uh, Nahid, do you want? Oh. Uh, well, I think I was uh, uh, on, on the second part of the question that whether you should join Ghani's team, <laughs> I would probably not advise that. Uh, but uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, the Taliban can try to, um, again, I think I'm repeating myself. They are. Um, their uh, clarity about future governance will determine how long they will survive, uh, how effective their governance is going to be. Uh, they have reached out to people, um, and there are, I think, some people you know from the from the previous uh, government uh, who are who are helping. Um, um, let's say in the Ministry of Finance, for instance, uh, you know, a deputy minister I see is still around and helping the Taliban. Um, but uh, that's not enough. Uh, I think uh, there is a severe, you know, capacity issue in, in governance, especially when you don't have a vision mm. as, 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 a, as an administration, right, as a government. Then technocrats and, and, and technical capability cannot take you far. Right. Beside of the issue of expertise, there's also issue of morality. Many experts do not want to collaborate with a group of terrorists and decay that rule country by force and killed their loved ones for 20 years. Okay, that's also very important. Mm -hmm. We know a lot of people who are expertise who resigned from the government and also the ministries like Minister of Higher Education because a terrorist is the minister. Okay, simple, as simple as that. That's, that's also one of the issues that many may not work with Taliban because of the morality. Yeah, I, I would agree with both those comments. A, a number of Afghans said to me they were prepared to work with the government or the new government, the new de facto authorities, not for them, um, but they were prepared to work with them for the benefit of the Afghan people. Um, if you go to the ministries, it varies how many you know, civil servants are working. Um, some are better than others in terms of the Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and such like. Well, you know, we're all quite well staffed when we're there, um, with many of the former uh, civil servants working. The Taliban have some brighter, younger uh, members who've studied in, in universities you know, around the Middle East and, and, and the region. So they have a limited capacity, but I think they have insufficient capacity and defining their vision, as Lothwell has said, and defining their policy, their plan for the way forward is, is something that I mean, I think they need help on, whether they want to acknowledge the fact that they need help, how bad the situation has to become before they are prepared to um, make some concessions and agree to some help and maybe even agree to change some policies, I think is going to be critical as to how long they will be able to you know, govern without the country really being a, a disaster. I wonder, just as a, a slight follow-up, how much of a role can Afghan NGOs and civil society play? I mean, the health sector, even under the Ghani government, uh, was implemented in rural areas largely by NGOs. 
there's now discussions about how to either pay teachers or pay healthcare workers directly rather than through the government. Is that a model do you see the Taliban allowing? Is that a way to avoid some of the capacity issues at the center? Um, <laughs> I'll go. I'll go. Um, so I think uh, in the immediate short term, yes, they, the Taliban are prepared to allow that because they see the need to get money into the economy, to get health system operating, the education system operating, and you know people to get paid. So I think in the short term, in the longer term, obviously any government wants to govern and wants the money to be coming through them, and they will have the ability to you know, hand out the resources as they see fit. The problem being that the donors and the, you know, a Taliban government would have different views on, you know, what counts as priorities and such like. So for foreign donors, money for education is likely to be predicated upon girls going to school and university and such like. And in a number of areas, it's likely to be predicated upon women being able to work in that, those particular sectors. So there's going to be clashes. I think one of the problems with the chaotic evacuation process was that some of these top civil servants and um, effective NGOs have lost a, a good number of their, their excellent staff. So, you know, again, the NGOs and international NGOs have suffered capacity loss because of the events over the summer. Where again, back to you know, the original point, had there been a smooth transfer of power of everyone was hoping and an inclusive government, a lot of these problems might not have been happening. So mm. I, I think, yeah, they're going to struggle. In Afghanistan, um, last 10 years that I was representing in Afghanistan parliament, there was always a debate of on-budget, off-budget budgets that has to be allocated for different projects. And most of the donor countries wanted to have this uh, through off-budget because they wanted to have their own criteria uh, to be uh, imposed uh, and implemented. So we have the system of off-budget that already is in place. Just there is one problem. I want to ask from donor countries, will you fund an education system that is only for boys? If you want to do that, then you have to answer your taxpayers mm -hmm. the question. That's very fundamental issue. Great. Let me go to Molly from Virginia, who has a question for Steve. Reflecting on your interactions with the Taliban, were good faith negotiations between the Taliban and the former government leading to a power sharing agreement? Was that ever feasible? Uh, were those talks going to bear fruit? If so, what could the US and international community have done differently to facilitate more sustainable talks? I, how long have I got? No. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so this, this is a subject of much debate. Um, the Taliban, of course, as any good negotiators would do, said all the right things at the negotiating table and implied they were ready to make a deal, that they were not looking for monopoly of government, um, and that they were you know, prepared to share power and reach a peaceful handover. Now, of course, if you look at what actually happened subsequently, with the benefit of hindsight, even when they took over, they if they didn't want monopoly of power, they did have the ability still to appoint you know, other people as ministers and such like. So that calls into question whether they were ever actually genuine about sharing power, perhaps. And also at the same time, from our conversations over the last three or four years uh, with non-negotiating team members of the Taliban commanders and such like, 
it was quite clear that there was the line was we will achieve complete military victory we will not share power we will get rid of this government and we will take over now that of course could have just been the propaganda for the military guys to keep encouraging them in the fight in the same way you know former president ghani has come under criticism for not giving up anything you know not being willing to form an inclusive government now publicly he was very hardline and strong and said the Taliban must join my government, I'm not giving up my government. Privately, he had said to a number of people, if it takes me stepping down for the Taliban to join the government and having a new leader, that's fine, I'm prepared to do it. But again, his private line was different from his, his public line. Um, I think the real thing that destroyed any chance of a successful uh, conclusion to the inter-Afghan negotiations was when the two sets of negotiations were delinked, if you like, when the American Taliban negotiations ended up being completely delinked from progress in inter Afghan negotiations. If you remember, originally, uh, you know, Ambassador Khalasad was talking about nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, and then quite clearly it became about the American withdrawal, and that was time bound, not then conditional upon anything to do with progress in inter Afghan negotiations. And that handed a great, you know, ability to the Taliban just to wait out. You know, there was that period of uncertainty after Biden was elected and, and Trump was no longer there as to whether you know, President Biden would then extend the deadline in any way. Um, but immediately the announcement came, uh, as Alfred has said, that Americans are going by a certain date. That was it, really, I think, for, 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 the, for the negotiations. So a, a lot of things could have been done differently at various points, but that wasn't what either of the two American administrations really wanted. They wanted out. And that sort of rather sealed the fate of negotiations, I felt. Lafella, you wanted to, you, you were hinting in your introductory remarks uh, some what ifs. Do you have any thoughts on this as well? Well, um, I think the Taliban were, well, some people say that the peace process was dead um, in Doha after the US Taliban deal. And some people say, I might argue that uh, the Taliban were still interested until Americans made that decision, you know, that we're going to leave no matter what. Uh, but the Taliban were certainly, you know, given a lot of uh, leverage, not just by the United States, but uh, I think by the region as well. So mm. they, were, they were empowered in the sense that they did not believe much in the, in the intra-Afghan talks. Um, we didn't talk about uh, much about, you know, although Steve touched upon um, the, the uh, uh, willingness in Kabul about um, uh, a negotiated settlement. Kabul certainly, you know, could have played a much, much um, uh, helpful role. Um, uh, I think that was um, very tragic to see, you know, what had happened, uh, and particularly the last um, episode basically killed any last hope hmm. for um, a, an inclusive, relatively inclusive, or more inclusive than today's government. Uh, and we know that you know, there were discussions in Doha about 13 ministries going to the Republic and you know, some others going to the Taliban. And after two weeks of uh, um, uh, negotiations, or probably not negotiations, but you know, going through a checklist of uh, you know, transfer of power, 
mm -hmm. um, uh, that uh, President Karzai and uh, Chief Executive Abdullah were, were, were planning to go. Uh, I think I was on the phone with Dr. Abdullah um, one day, on, on, I think on the 14th, uh, that uh, they were planning to leave uh, uh, the next day. Mm. So, so that last episode that Ghani decided to leave um, somehow, you know, gave the Taliban this space um, and resulted anything which you know we went through for the next two weeks. Thanks. We have time for one more question, and I'll go to Talon, who asks, "What is the Taliban's capacity and will to protect vulnerable populations from ISK attacks?" Uh, furthermore, what is the nature of the risk of mass atrocities, either by the Taliban or ISK, specifically for ethnic and mi minority groups? Um, Nahid, do you want to answer that first? Yeah, Taliban showed that they don't have the capability to protect the people of Afghanistan and to protect the minorities, to protect mosques, to protect uh, hospitals. So you saw the uh, attack yesterday in Charsad Bastar Hospital in Kabul that 25 people were killed. And um, uh, that's the reality that is on the ground that Taliban showed they cannot protect the people of Afghanistan from any threat, including ISK. Thanks. I think we've always had you know, accountability issues, but now it's uh, probably even worse. So uh, when things happen, like journalists beaten, um, and incidents happen, I don't think there is much of follow-up and explanation to why it happened, how it happened, and what the Taliban are going to do to, to deal with it. So there isn't much of um, sort of a communication you know, with the Taliban. Uh, uh, might be you know, with those from the international community who meet with them, but I, I don't see much of that happening uh, with, the, uh, with the Afghan people. Um, I, I'm less worried about the Taliban carrying out, you know, sort of uh, ethnic atrocities in a sense, but the fact that they do not include so many of the other ethnic groups in their government comes back to the accountability. You know, there aren't representatives, particularly of the Hazaras or the Shias in senior positions in government. There's a couple of Uzbeks, but there's very few Tajiks, Turkmens, you know, and other groups aren't well represented. Therefore, you know, there's a risk that such groups could be incredibly badly treated. Um, there was a feeling amongst some of the Taliban in Doha uh, that, for example, who commented privately that over the last 20 years, you know, the Hazaras have had far too much power and influence and you know, done far too well under the, uh, the Karzai and Ghani regimes, and it was time they were sort of you know, put back in their place. Now, that's not a positive you know, sort of attitude to be, to be holding, and you see that you know, we have one uh, Hazara deputy minister of health who's a doctor, technocratic sort of person. Um, so unless you have a representative government, the the underrepresented or non-represented groups are under more threat and more risk because they don't have a, a say in government and they're not seen to be part of the government. So I think there is a risk from that point of view. Islamic State is obviously, genuine Islamic State is clearly uh, you know, a law unto itself and completely barbaric and obviously has sectarian uh, issues that it wishes to you know, promote. And so that is a, is a definite risk, I think, to, to the Shia population and you know, the Sufis and, and others. You know, it's, it's a problem. Um, Thanks. I do see one more, and it has the word hope in it. So let me let me rather end on that note. And Jill Baggerman from asked a question for both Latfila and Nahid. 
uh, from where do you see hope for the population to push for more inclusive government, whether locally or nationally? I think, I think, I mean, I see hope in the society because that country has changed. I can't say Afghanistan, you know, is, uh, you know, rolled back to 2001. I don't think that's a fair assessment. The country has changed. Uh, there are, uh, you know, millions of Afghans uh, who would like to see a more open, democratic uh, government and society. Uh, they may have uh, a... Go, you know, they may go through a, a bad chapter, but it doesn't mean that's you know that's going to be stuck with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So, so I think I think the Afghan people. I mean, I have seen um, so many ups and downs and revolutions in my life um, uh, for the past 30, 35 years. So uh, God knows what's going to happen uh, in the next five years, 10 years, you know, 20 years. So I think it's very important for the Afghan people not to give up hope. Um, uh, the society is way more engaging, way more vibrant than ever before. Um, and I think that's uh, the source of you know, hope that I get uh, from people I talk to on a daily basis. Tahir, you have the last word. One of the um, matters that keep the people of Afghanistan hopeful is the leverages that the world has against Taliban. Mm. The conditions that the world can put on an engagement with Taliban. Another issue is that I think that's also a hope of women of Afghanistan, that engaging with Taliban is against international law. Mm. It's against international and universal values. Okay? It's against uh, uh, Women, Peace, and Security 1325. And uh, the values that free world is practicing, that Taliban have to follow those values in order to get uh, normal recognition from the world, okay? That's another hope. And the third hope is, as I, as I already mentioned and touched upon, women of Afghanistan are majority, okay? They can change because they are the majority and they proved what they are capable of. Youth of Afghanistan are also majority. 70% of Afghan people are under the age of 35. Mm. They are all a majority. When, when the world asked that, what is the alternative of Taliban, I would say the people of Afghanistan, the majority, okay, just they need, they need some sort of help and solidarity to establish the government that they deserve. Thank you. Thank you all very much Thank for you. a great discussion. Thank you for watching, both the people here and those that are watching online. We hope to have more events soon talking about the Afghanistan situation. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.